Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. I don't know if you have had this sensation before, but when you've either read a good novel or watched a good movie, it seems like you get started with one story and you think you know what the focus is going to be. And it's usually a tight focus and it's usually on one main character. And then the more they start unfolding the backstory, the more you start to realize, oh, I think there's a lot more going on here than met the eye when I first started in this story. Uh, Our little coffee group with the old guys that, uh, I don't know, that's what we call it, the old guys having coffee on Wednesdays. John Jarvis mentioned one movie that I remembered having seen several years ago, and it was called Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks. True story. And I remember that happening with that. You start to see a much bigger story as you get the context for that. As I was watching that movie with the Bridge of Spies, I saw this New York lawyer who was tapped to try to defend a guy from Russia because they wanted to at least make an appearance that they were having a fair trial. And it became apparent that the CIA had other plans up their sleeves. And uh, they tried a couple of times to get him to find out information and to break his client privilege. And he wouldn't do it because he was a man of principle, this James Donovan, the lawyer. And then, even though the guy was convicted to 30 years, the CIA discovered that maybe there would be some leverage available with this guy and that perhaps they could do a spy swap with Russia. So then they said, well, who knows this guy better than anybody? The lawyer who defended him, Donovan. Let's get him to try to go over there and negotiate this spy trade to see if we can swap one of ours for one of theirs. Because there was one guy who was a spy, he was a U-2 pilot, who had been shot down and was arrested and was still in Russia. So Donovan goes over there on what looks like is either a setup for him to fail so they can have a scapegoat or an impossible mission. And you thought, well, he's either going to get killed in the process of trying to negotiate this or perhaps he's going to get caught and imprisoned himself. It just looked like it was a dire situation. The more you get into the characters, the more you're riveted about what's going on with this thing. And strangely enough, by the time they get to the end of this story, you realize he pulled off the impossible. And he negotiated the swap. And the reason it's called Bridge of Spies is at the very end, you see the two guys that are stopped on this famous bridge. And you got the car headlights showing where they are. And each man walks out to the center in the exchange. And there's tension. And you're wondering, is somebody going to shoot? And they make the exchange. And you think, he did it. He negotiated the impossible. It was fantastic. Then when you see the little scrolling words at the end of the the, the little epilogue, you have to go and look it up because you think, this can't be. Did he really do all this stuff? He was so good at negotiating that they decided to tap him for a few other negotiations along the way, including a couple of years later, after the Cold War, he negotiated the release of 9,703 prisoners in Cuba left over from the Bay of Pigs invasion. Amazing! Just a quiet guy doing what he does best, 
but he was a man of principle and he knew what made people tick. And so you get to the end of that and you think, oh, that's impossible. That feels contrived. And then you go and look it up and you read the history and think, nope, they got it right. That was exactly the way it happened. It's kind of the way it feels sometimes that we get presented the story of Christmas. It's portrayed usually as sort of that romanticized version of the young couple and they have to travel to another town just as she's expecting and you feel sorry for them because any of you know that it's difficult as it is not to mention all the travel that was involved and then they get there and have to be put up in essentially a stable and it's just a very sweet story but you find out the more backstory you get to this thing that there's a whole lot more going on and it's a much broader story and one that's global in scope it's historic in nature and it's personal for all of us it's bigger because it's historical this christmas story is much bigger because it is actually historical it's a real event it really took place in real history with real people. And so a lot of people would tend to think, oh no, it's fictionalized, that's mythology. It was written long time ago and it's been changed numerous times. You get to hear a lot of that. But when you really do the digging and find out who the real witnesses were and how it got passed down, the more you think, no, we have to put our, our trust in this story as being a real thing. Another Tom Hanks movie, which I've referred to because I enjoyed it a lot, was Apollo 13. And the first time I saw that was in the movie theater, which you really have to see it on the big screen because, you know, you, you really see the expanse of space and you feel the tightness of that tiny capsule as they're trying to find their way through some difficult, dire circumstances. But just before we went in, it was when it first came out, so there was still a line. We had to wait in line before we could go into our showing. And people were coming out of the theater, and it's always interesting to hear their comments. You're hoping that you don't get a spoiler alert. Like in the movie Pompeii, I wanted to give a spoiler alert for people waiting in line and saying, they all die. <laughs> but I didn't. And so we're waiting outside the theater to go see Apollo 13, and a younger couple, much younger than I, but young enough not to have lived through that event in history. And one of them said, oh, that was so contrived. <laughs> if they really had to go through all that stuff, they never would have made it back safely. And I, I just chuckled. I thought, well, you need to go and read Wikipedia. Because <laughs> you'll find out that Ron Howard, the director, did a great job of sticking very closely with the exact events that really took place in that capsule. And you think, that's a huge thing, especially when you start to consider the broader context of that story. Because there was the space race going on. There was the buildup and escalation of technology happening between Russia and America. There were the bragging rights of who has the best technology to make it to the moon first. People died in the Apollo program preparing so that they could learn each time they did another mission. So there was a lot at stake there. And I, I hear a lot of comments today from skeptics of Christianity that sound a lot like that couple. You know, oh, the Christmas story, it's just a story. It's just myth. No, it, it really happened. It was a historic event. The people were really a part of that. Now, the season... Yeah, probably not. Uh, that's because there was this emperor named Constantine who was wanting to replace some of the pagan celebrations that were going on. I think that was in about the 4th century. And he wasn't looking at Jesus' birth certificate when he decided to proclaim. You know, emperors can proclaim stuff. They can just make decrees. And so he made a decree and said, I thus saith that we are now going to celebrate Christmas on the 25th. So that became the time that we celebrate. But that was because of Constantine. That was not necessarily the time of year 
when Jesus would have actually been born. But that's okay, because that's not the main issue here. That's not the real story. The real events were the real story, and the thing that mattered the most is that Jesus is God. And we've talked about this. Secondly, it's bigger in scope and in meaning. This Christmas story is bigger because the Christmas story is global. Not only was it a historic event, but it's global in scope. And there were several things that happened that helped make that so. You start to wonder, well, what was going on at the time? God knew they had politics that were at play here. You had nations that were warring against other nations. This was just prior to the Pax Romana when another uh, leader came in and started to finally find a series of peaceful settlements. Even though there were still some skirmishes and uprisings, there was about a 200-year period that shortly after this that finally came into what they called the, the Roman peace or the Pax Romana. But at this time, it was still really in turmoil. It was like just a powder keg waiting for everybody to explode. The economics were going crazy. Uh, people were out to try to get their neighbor. Nations were in conflict with other nations. And even within the Jewish empire, you can see all these people, the different, the 12 tribes of Israel. You'd have some that were mistreating others. Romans were coming into play. It was just a really conflictual time. And yet God used even an emperor that we would normally not think of as a very nice guy to get his job done, Caesar Augustus. And if you can read some of the Roman history around then, these were despicable leaders, some of them. The things that they did in the name of their leadership, oh, it was rough. Can God use a leader like that for a nation? He absolutely can, and he did. People be asking that today. Can God use people in Congress and the House of Representatives? Can he actually use the people who are empowered by our vote? And oh my goodness. I mean, this is a conflictual time in America as well. But we can trust that if God used Caesar Augustus to accomplish what he was trying to accomplish back then, he still has control, believe it or not, over the affairs of this nation. And we need to bathe our nation in prayer. Caesar Augustus. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and each one should go unto his own country. They needed to go to their own hometown because they couldn't really apply online to do the census back then. <laughs> and that's why it was so necessary for Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Things weren't nearly as far as, as Joy and I had mentioned before since you sent us to Israel a couple of years ago. Things are not nearly the distances that we tend to think of, because in America, we say, well, how far is it going to get there? Well, we have to drive two days to get to that other state where our son lives. Two days? Because things were far. But over in Israel, it's not that far. So they could have made the, the journey. Still would have been rough, but it's not like they're going to Texas. And so it was all a part of God's plan to make sure that it came from the city of Bethlehem. There are all these prophecies in the Old Testament that we had through several series that we've gone through. And God had his hand at play in every one of these moving parts, and there were hundreds of moving parts at play here. But God is big enough to handle every one of those moving parts. Roman statesman, this emperor, military leader who became the first emperor of Roman Empire, Augustus. Now that was, it's the most, they had the song that they would sing back there, but I don't know the Hebrew version of it, so the transliteration into English would be, it's the most wonderful time of the year. What time of the year was that? What was the census? And that's why they had to go. They wanted to make sure that they could count heads and make sure they knew who all came from which country. For one thing, that's one of the ways that they could do sort of like our draft, so they could conscript people of age to get into their army if they needed people to fight for you. But they all also wanted to know who they could tax. 
Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. But all this was taking place in the fullness of time, says Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, what? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. All of that mess that was happening in the world that was known at that time with the Roman Empire, all of that took place so that God could fulfill in his good time what he had planned all along. Sometimes we sure get impatient because things don't happen in the time we would like them to happen. I know that we in the building committee have been working real hard and we're prayerful. We hope you'll continue to pray for us too because we sense that God is stirring something up and you know you get sticker shock and you look at to see the prices of things and you start to think, oh man, this is so easily discouraging. But in the fullness of time, God knows what he's going to provide and when he's going to provide it and how he's going to provide it so that people can point to him as the provider. And we're praying for that. We're continuing to pray big time that God's going to show us the right path because we still believe strongly that he has some good work for us to do that we can do more than one day a week on that property down there. It's global in scope, and the reason I knew that it was global in scope, this Christmas story, is because I've met people from different countries who are impacted because of what the Christmas story stands for, what it meant. My mom, as I mentioned, would have single professors from Grand Canyon College over to our house for a tree trim party every year because she recognized they didn't have any families to celebrate with. And so my sister and I were surrounded by all these cerebral people with bad puns and great stories, and they would help us decorate the tree. And my mom would have her special mulled cider, and she would make pecan waffles, and I could hear the Christmas uh, songs playing on the little large, put the needle down on the thing. The record player, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and one of the stories, because my mom would always sit around in the living room after we had eaten and we decorated the tree, and she would ask one good question and everybody could share a story. And my sister and I were privileged to some rare stories in those gatherings. And one of them was a lady named Anne. She looked like she was about 115 years old, because <laughs> I was young at the time. She was probably 70. And, but, but she... <laughs> But she had had a rough life, so she looked a lot older than her age. Some of you look 50. So, and Anne was actually from Germany, and she shared with us that while she was a child, they were starting to have the occupation during the buildup to World War II, the Nazis were in power, and her family, being a Christian family, could not stand by and do nothing, and so they housed a couple of Jews in their house secretively. It affected their family extremely personally, and unfortunately, so much so that somebody actually ratted out this family and they took those prisoners out and shot them in front of her. That's what she remembered about Christmas. And yet, she did not recant her belief in Jesus Christ because she said, we'd do it again. It was the right thing to do. And yes, it's painful. It's an awful thing that they did, but that's because of sin in the world. And we have to do everything we can to be salt and light. So we have to fight against that by doing good for people when we can, by doing what Christ would do. See, that was Anne. And she came from another country, came to America, was embraced by a whole bunch of people at Grand Canyon College. It was a Christian college. And everybody just embraced her in her community of faith. And she was such a strong proponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ because she believed in it, even at great cost. 
And then there were Chinese college students. And my mom got to meet some of them. I've told you that she was uh, teaching English as a second language. We went two different mission trips to China. And then we've got folks in our own midst. I know the Gubinis, you've done a lot of work with uh, helping college students who have come here from China, picking them up at the airport and ministering to them through Christian Challenge when you were doing that. And there are just a number of ways that we can see that God is at work in so many different nations. And there are so many people that when they finally get the broader context, the real meaning of the Christmas story and why it was necessary, it's life-changing. It's a big deal. When my mom was teaching, they said, now you can't overtly share your faith like you would tell a sermon or something, but you can say, ask me any question you want about America, and then you can answer honestly whatever they're asking about. So they would say, well, what kind of holidays do you celebrate? Well, that was a great question. She would say, well, let me tell you about two of the main holidays that we celebrate, Christmas and Easter. And she would just explain Christmas and Easter because she was just telling about that cultural phenomenon back in America. But what a great thing. And she said there were a couple of students that came up and just pestered her with questions after one of those presentations because they thought it was phenomenal, this story about Christmas and what it really meant. And so it was just so fun to see that people were coming alive, that there's a much bigger picture involved than just the tiny story that gets told about Christmas. Iko Tyra, I got to meet Iko. She brought us flowered lays, wreaths that she put around our necks when she came to Phoenix because she was from Hawaii. And she knew about the cost of the Christian faith too because when she first heard the good news about the real meaning of Christmas, she gave her heart to Christ and was disowned by her immediate family. And yet that didn't deter her because she said God has replaced that immediate family with hundreds of other brothers and sisters. And she too found a home at Grand Canyon University, then college, and so many Christian brothers and sisters that would continue to invite her to their homes for different holidays. And she was praying for her parents and for a way for her to be an influence on them so that hopefully one day they too could come to faith in Jesus Christ as she had. It meant something to Iko. And this is global. And that's just three examples of hundreds of people that my parents came in contact with to show us that this is a global phenomenon. That's how far reaching the Christmas story really is. And it's global because it reaches all the way back to the Old Testament to a promise that God made to a man named Abraham. He called Abram before his name was changed out of the Ur of Chaldees, went way up into the northern Mesopotamia and then over and across the top and back down to the left on your map and finally landed where God had for him. And that was really the patriarch of what became the Jewish people. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great and you're going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sands on the seashore. You know, if you've ever been to the seashore, there's a lot of sand. And he's going to bless all the nations through your descendant, and especially through this descendant that we know now as being the Messiah, which he did. And so that promise is coming true all the way through to this thing called Christmas, because that was part of the fulfillment of God's great plan all the way from the beginning. It's much bigger than a couple having a baby in Bethlehem. Yes, that's a great story. And it's wonderful to see how God provided for them. And it's heartwarming, and it makes it personal for us because that really happened to real people. And we can all identify with folks who have had difficult birth experiences and birth stories. I happen to know one family that the midwife didn't show up on time. And thirdly, it's much bigger story because it is personal. It's so personal, especially for those who embrace the real meaning, the broader context, the real meaning of Christmas. It really is personal. Joy's dad had this unique ability, he's in heaven now, 
George, George Washington Castle. Named so because mom had had so many, or his mom had had so many kids by then that she'd run out of names. And he was born on George Washington's birthday. And so a nurse finally said, well, why not George Washington? She goes, sounds good to me. <laughs> That's George. And George had this knack of putting pieces together and making things just so cosmic. And it would be so simple. He would be sitting on a couch with this throng of relatives at Christmas. I, I only had one sister when I was growing up, so I was a little overwhelmed and and I didn't know what to do with all this noise when I started going to Christmases at the Castle Clan because it was wild. But George would just sit there with his arms folded across his stomach and he'd look around and he'd just be grinning, listening to the chaos. And then he would just look at me and he'd catch my eye and he'd just kind of pat the seat next to him, which means, I've got something to share with you, son. And I'd say, okay. And I'd come and sit down next to George. And he would say, I was just thinking. I was just thinking how interesting it is that you and Joy, my daughter, were actually born in the very same hospital and you didn't even know each other. Same city. And she had to go all the way back up here to Michigan where I moved because of the job. And instead of going to college where we all thought she was gonna go at Spring Arbor in Michigan, she went all the way back to Arizona because I guess she had to meet you. And I was just thinking, isn't it interesting? And he would string this long set of circumstances together, going all the way back to where he met his wife, my mother-in-law, at a youth event at a Baptist church in Arizona when he was in the Air Force, which is what took him out there. And then he talked about the political situation and why he went in the Air Force in the beginning. He traces it all the way back. You thought he was starting at Genesis. <laughs> and going all the way to Revelation because he was stringing it together because he recognized this is personal. God had his hand in every one of those events leading up to you two, and now you've got three beautiful children, and look at them. Look at them having fun at Christmas. Isn't that something that God would be so personally involved in your lives? And he would cause me to shake my head, and I would think, I'd never quite thought about it like that. But you're right, Dad. It is amazing that God would see these things so personally and move all the pieces together because there were a lot of moving parts. Now, I have to make a correction from last week. Somebody laughed. It was either last week or week before when I said that I had two of them before I met Joy. Now, I mean two girlfriends. Okay, I wasn't married twice before I... <laughs> somebody said, Dad, did you hear the way... Somebody... <laughs> Sometimes I'm slipping. I know what I meant when I said that. I meant there were two possibilities that I thought might be the ones that could become a wife at some point. But just wanted to clarify that. God had his hand even in those two girls saying no. Because God knew, obviously, that I needed to have this woman in my life. God still knows each one of you. And I want you to know that no matter what you're going through, he knows you. And he's got his hand on your life. He's got a plan for you. And things may be really rough at times. They really get that way because we live in a fallen world. You can trust him. You really can. It's personal. It's not just informational. I sense that a lot of the kind of intellectualism of Christianity in America has almost replaced information 
for relationship. And we have to guard against that. We have to guard against becoming so filled up with knowledge about God that we miss the relationship with God. And the Christmas story is so much more than just information. I think that's why God came as a, a person, because he wanted to make himself personal and personable, reachable, attainable. It's not just metaphorical either. It's not just something that's a good story that you can draw a few good lessons from. This really happened, and it happened for good reason. It's not just transactional. A lot of people try to turn Christianity into a transaction that if you just invest like a good stock market, then you're going to get these dividends out of God. And it's not a transaction. That's not the way God works. The only transaction is you're bankrupt. The only person who can give you any kind of spiritual income is Jesus Christ, and that's why he gave himself clearly for us. So is the Christmas story true? People ask that, and I would say absolutely. I've dedicated decades of my life into looking for reasons to back this up, and there are abundant reasons why. Yes, it's absolutely true. The evidence is so clear. Yes, the Christmas story is absolutely true. But what is the significance? The significance is what I just mentioned about us needing to be rescued. Sinners lost in their sin are dead apart from Jesus Christ who can make them alive and become new creations in him. That's the significance. That's why Christmas is so important. I met a guy named Pablo at a graveside service just a little over a week ago. And he asked me, he said, so what church do you preach in? And I said, Living Water Community Church. He goes, what kind of church is that? And I said, a really good one. <laughs> he said, well, I'm sure that that's true. He said, but, you know, like what denomination? I said, well, we're Baptists. And he hugged me. He almost picked me up off the ground and hugged me. He said, oh, praise God. Good deal. He said, I was saved in a Baptist church. He goes, let me tell you my story. Now, this is as I'm waiting to be able to officiate the graveside service. But I got to hear Pablo's story. He said, I was a drug dealer. I was a nasty individual. I've done things that I'm so ashamed of that only God could forgive, and he has. He said, I was actually a crack addict and a heroin addict, and I was strung out for 20 years. And I found myself at rock bottom when I'd lost my job, and I'd lost my family. I'd lost everything. And I, I didn't have anywhere else to go but up. And I looked up, and I just called out to God and said, God, if you're real, do something. And boy, did he ever. He said, I got radically saved. I mean transformed. I started going to the church immediately. He took away the desire for drugs just like that. He says, I know that doesn't happen, but it happens when God can get involved. And he said, and I've got a track. I've got one here. Let me give it to you. And he gave me his track, which is his story, his testimony on there, and a way for people to find Christ for themselves on the back and scripture verses. And he said, I get to tell as many people as I can now what God can do for them, because if he can do that for me, he can do it for anybody. And he meant that. He knew it because the Christmas story was really historical with real people. It really happened. It's global in scope. And it was personal because all those things wove all the way down from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, until God in his infinite wisdom touched Pablo by somebody who shared Jesus Christ with him. And now he's sharing Jesus Christ with everybody else too. It's a cosmic event. Because God is the God who created the cosmos. And we can count on him being able to touch a life 
through a whole lot of other lives, he's got all those pieces at work. Many have made claims. There are a lot of different people who had claimed to be Messiah, but only one in history has ever lived, lived up to those claims and has done everything prophesied that the Messiah would actually do, and that person is Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. It's just up to every one of us to decide. We really have to continue to decide and to say, yes, I really do believe this is true. I'm not going to romanticize Christmas. I'm going to realize that this was a part of God's cosmic plan to redeem a lost world, and I get to be a part of that now. I'm going to trust him. Even though life gets hard, I'm going to trust him. Even though I feel like I don't have much to offer, I'm going to give God whatever I've got, and he's going to turn that into an opportunity to share faith with somebody else. We have to decide. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this Christmas we'll start to sense something a little broader than we may have started the season with in terms of the scope of the Christmas story. And I pray that you will really ignite something in our hearts that would allow us to touch somebody else's life by being honest about what you've meant in our lives that we won't hesitate to be obedient to whatever you ask us to do or say when it comes to sharing our faith with other people. Because we're here because people did that. And we can do the same for others. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.